For the week of Thursday, May 31st, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk about the plight of immigrant children being forcibly separated from their parents at the Mexico border. We are joined by Jennifer Podkul. She's an international human rights lawyer, and she is also the director of policy at Kids in Need of Defense in Washington, D.C., to discuss the situation as it is currently unfolding and to talk about why we in the activist community need to be putting more pressure on our members of Congress about this issue. When we go to their offices, they say to us, we're not hearing from our constituents that they're upset about this. If their phones start ringing that this is a real issue that Americans care about, they're going to be pushing back much harder against the administration on this. And we also talk with Hilda Blanco, who will be a featured speaker at Friday's protest event in Seattle, the National Day of Children, put on by the Seattle Domestic Workers Alliance. All that, plus our dose of good news. Stay with us. So anyone monitoring recent developments with immigrant children in this country knows that the situation right now is extremely distressing. Uh, First, the Department of HHS is reportedly unable to account for nearly 1,500 immigrant minors who came to the U.S. unaccompanied. And additionally, a recently announced policy from the Department of Justice is resulting in children being forcibly separated from their parents at the Mexico border. Joining us to help understand what is going on is Jennifer Podkul. She is the Director of Policy for Kids in Need of Defense, or KIND, a D.C.-based nonprofit that helps provide legal representation for unaccompanied immigrant children. Jennifer Podkul, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I want to have you help us understand what's going on with both of these issues that I brought up. Um, So let's start with what's happening at the border. And I think a good place to start is to talk about the policy that is leading to all of this, the so-called zero tolerance policy from the DOJ that Jeff Sessions announced on May 8th. Tell us what is different now and why is it leading to children being separated from their families? Sure. So, you know, this administration has threatened to institute blanket policies of family separation in order to deter future migrants from coming here and asking for protection. They have floated this idea around. Congress has pushed back. The American public has pushed back on this. The way they figured they were going to try to do this is to institute the zero tolerance policy for uh, people who are entering the United States without documents, without visas, without advance notice, and asking for protection. So what they're doing is they are prosecuting 100% of the people that they apprehend on the southern border. When that happens, and you have a, a family unit traveling together, when that parent is hauled off to U.S. Marshal's custody to deal with their criminal prosecution, their children are left unaccompanied. They're rendered unaccompanied. So now these kids are just like any other child who arrived at the border by themselves, and they go over to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which has the responsibility to care for those kids. So what's happening is in just the two-week period since this policy has been announced, Customs and Border Protection reports to Congress that over 600 families have been separated already. So just in two weeks, this policy is having a dire impact. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, it really is just, it, it's hard to put into words what's happening down there. Um, 
it's my understanding, and this is from some writing that you've done on the Kind website, that even if the parents crossing the border aren't slated for criminal prosecution, that they're still being separated from their children. Is that correct? Right. So the administration uh, keeps saying that they're only going to prosecute families who are apprehended between the ports of entry, and that if somebody presented themselves at a port of entry with their family, they would not be separated. That is not what we're seeing. First of all, we're seeing people being turned away from ports of entry. So people literally lining up at the bridges and the ports asking for protection and being told, come back another day. We don't have any protection to give you today. You know, we're full. Uh, Come back another day. So they're sleeping on the streets in Mexico waiting to come in. And we have seen families who are still separated, even though they're coming in through the port of entry. I think, you know, this really reflects their intent, which is trying to deter people from asking for protection and a really cruel, uh, really cruel way of trying to use this as a matter of deterrence. And to just be clear, what was happening previous to this was that people would cross the border with their families and they would say, uh, I need I'm here for asylum purposes. And then they were kept together as a family unit. And, And then what would happen previously? What would happen? Sure. So uh, the government has a a threshold test for anyone that's asking for asylum at the border. So if you're apprehended at the border, you turn yourself in, you would say, I'm asking for protection. I'm scared to go back to my home country. And they would do a cursory interview with you just to make sure it seemed like you had a valid claim that they were willing to entertain. And if you did, you were processed. You were given a paperwork that said you need to show up to court on this day. You know, here's some resources. You know, this is what you're going to need to do and let them go live in the United States with some family member or friend who is willing to care for them while they were going through the process. So the, those families could stay together um, and while they were going through the process because oftentimes their cases are one story, right? One instance, right. one um, compelling set of facts. And so, and then our government was able to process those cases, families, without resorting to detention. So now not only are we spending uh, limited government resources on incredibly high prosecutions of people who are just coming here for protection, we've now separated all their cases. So now these immigration courts, which are already insanely backlogged, are just doubled, tripled, even quadrupled now the number of cases that they're trying to deal with. Yeah. And this is something that obviously through your work, you know, very intimately. You know, I want to just point a clarification. There are two agencies at the border. There's ICE, that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Um, There's also the CPB, that is the Customs and Border Protection. And because people have been asking this question, because they want to know who to contact to express their, their, their anger over what's happening. Who are the agents who are specifically responsible for physically separating the children at the border? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a it's an alphabet soup down there of all the agencies who are involved in this. So Customs and Border Protection is responsible for the perimeters of our country. So they have the Office um, of Field Operations. So those are the blue uniforms we see when we fly internationally, go in and out of international airports. The, the people that you see at passport checkpoints. Exactly. Yeah. And then Border Patrol, which is the green uniform. So you see lots of images of them, you know, on TV. Um, so they're the ones who are monitoring between the official ports of entry. So CDP, Customs and Border Protection, is kind of the perimeter areas of our country. Um, and then Immigration and Customs Enforcement, they do immigration enforcement on the interior of our country, the inside. So they're the ones who might do a workplace raid or who've been showing up to schools and trying to pick up parents when they're dropping off their children. 
Now, and now it's a totally different entity that's doing the criminal prosecutions of parents. That's under Jeff Sessions' mandate of Department of Justice. So, you know, what we've been telling people who want to express outrage about this is first, you know, talk to people about it. Most Americans don't know about this, and they're absolutely horrified when they find out. It is really important for members of Congress to hear. I know this sounds very wonky coming from somebody in D.C., but, you know, what they when we come to um, when we go to their offices, they say to us, "We're not hearing from our constituents that they're upset about this. If their phones start ringing that this is a real issue that Americans care about, they're going to be pushing back much harder against the administration on this." And you know, lastly, I think local media is very important. Um, it's not just about CNN and Fox News. I think it's really important to get people to write letters to their local newspapers, talk to the, all their local media to really raise this issue and make it a local issue and really make this an American issue. I think some people think, oh, the border's so far away from me. Um, it seems, you know, very separate. Um, but if I think to make it a real American issue and really saying Americans don't, you know, stand up for family separation, this isn't who we are, it's going to be really powerful. And I do want to talk about action steps a little bit more down the line. But just to clarify, though, it it, it is the ICE agents who are doing the actual separating of children from their parents at the border, correct? It is Customs and Border Protection. Okay, so then it's the CPB yeah. who is doing that. Okay, so then, then then tell us what happens to these children after they've been separated from their parents. Sure. So once that parent is taken away by the U.S. Marshals out of that Customs and Border Protection facility, they have these little holding cells along the border, that child is then left there all by themselves in these you know, very inappropriate border patrol stations. Uh, at that point, when they are deemed unaccompanied because their parents gone, CBP has 72 hours to get them over to Health and Human Services because Health and Human Services has the responsibility to take care for and the custody of unaccompanied children. So ICE will then drive that child or make sure that child gets over to one of the HHS facilities around the country. Now, they have facilities all over the country. Um, right now, they have over 11,000 beds because there's such a great need right now. Um, both of the kids who are actually entering unaccompanied as well as the ones who are being rendered unaccompanied by our government. Right. So then these children go to HHS where they stay in these you know, group homes, shelters, juvenile halls, you know, this kind of patchwork of, of detention facilities that is run by HHS. Now, it, it is my understanding that the children are supposed to be reunited with their parents at some point. And in fact, the ACLU is suing the Justice Department on the grounds that once asylum seekers are released from prison and returned and, and turned over to ICE, that they're supposed to be reunited with their children. But that's not apparently what's happening. What is your understanding of this? What do you know about this in practice? So I can tell you what we're seeing here at KIND. We are seeing that, you know, when a child is separated, there is no systematic tracking of the different family members once they go their separate ways. So once that child goes to ICE or U.S. Marshals custody and that child goes to OR, there's no family tracking number. There's no identifying um, piece of paper in their file. There's no box to check that says we took this parent away from the child. Right. You know, here's where the child is. So it's been very difficult for our attorneys to try to find the separated family members once there's been separation. And in fact, we run a return and reintegration program where we help kids who are going back to Guatemala or Honduras if they decide not to stay in the United States. We've been asked to help in cases in which babies are being returned by themselves because the government has not even been able to reunify mm. them 
at the point of deportation. So, you know, we say separation. I think everyone thinks of that horrible moment when the child is separated from the parent. But we're really talking about permanent separation. I mean, this could be a long period of time that there's not only not communication between the child and the parent, but that they're not even reunifying them at the point of deportation. I mean, it's it's so traumatizing all the way around these Families are fleeing, as you say, uh, often uh, horrific violence in their country of origin. You mentioned Guatemala, you mentioned Honduras, and we know that that that, that exists down there. And then they come here, and then uh, the, they and their children are traumatized. Again, it's just it's it's just a, a horrible situation. Um, and I want to get an idea at this point, it, in terms of your tracking. How many children are, are we talking about who have been separated from their parents at the border right now? Well, what we know is what was reported by Border Patrol the other day in a Senate hearing that in just the two-week period when they instituted this prosecution policy, 638 adults have been prosecuted and separated from their children. And that was just in the first two-week window, where I don't even know if it's being implemented nationwide yet. So in just two weeks... Our government has created, you know, over 638 unaccompanied children. And it is my understanding, and this was from a press release from Amnesty International that dates back to October of 2017, that at least as early as that point, there were four children who were separated from their families back then. So this this has actually been going on for some time in some form or other. It's just been codified now, correct? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, even in the previous administration, we were seeing children who were separated. A lot of times they were more inadvertent separations because the government didn't really have systems to track people. They didn't systematically ask people if they were traveling with a family member. They didn't necessarily work to keep people together. So it was, you know, a combination of, I think, benign neglect in terms of developing these systems, not really catching up to the new migration trends, which is, you know, migration trends to the U.S. used to be single men looking for work. They would come for a few years to the United States and go home, right? And they wanted to, you know, build a house and be able to live at home. You know, this is totally different and our government had not caught up. So I think previously what we were seeing is less of an intentional blanket policy and more of kids and families falling through the cracks. Um, But since this policy has been instituted, you know, as of two or three weeks ago, this is now a brand new systematic blanket policy, which of which we've never seen before. And the numbers are increasing exponentially, as you say. Um, and, and speaking of then some of the, the, the children who have been in the system previously, uh, let's do talk about the nearly 1,500 children who are being reported as missing by the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, there's some confusion around this situation, so I'm hoping you can help us kind of understand this a little bit more. Uh, to be clear, and, and I think this is this is clear from what you're saying, but I just want to put a, a very fine point on this. These are not the children who have recently been separated from their families at the border, correct? Correct. So what, you know, the, the origin of, of this story was really um, the government several years ago had released children 
who had ended up in a labor trafficking situation. So Congress was very concerned about this, and they started asking HHS, what are you doing to follow up with these children once you reunify them with somebody in the United States? Well, um, actually, well, let me stop you right there, because I do want to talk about sort of how the protocol works when people... So essentially what happens is a, a child crosses the border alone, and these are the... the, the of the 1,500, that it's that cohort of, of children who are, are currently unaccounted for. And, and so I'm curious, what had been the protocol for dealing with children who crossed the border alone? Sure. So what what has been the, the policy and, and still is, is that they go into the custody of HHS because you can't just leave an unaccompanied child. You know, you can't just let them drop them off at the bus station and say, good luck with court. So what they did is they have these shelters around the country to house these kids. And then the government works to reunify that child with some sponsor in the United States who can care for that child as they go through the deportation process. And that's usually a family member or somebody that the child has knowledge of, correct? Exactly. It could be a parent. It could be an extended family member. It could be a close family friend. So these were children. So these children, they usually spend about 30 days in the custody of the government. And then once the government does the background check, verifies the relationship, um, they will release the child. So what the government, what Congress was asking HHS is they said, once you release those kids, what do you do? What sort of follow up do you do? How do you make sure that that was a safe, good placement. Um, So what HHS has implemented is they do one phone call 30 days after the child is reunified to check in to say, are you enrolled in school? How are things going? You know, have you found an attorney? Um, And so this was done as a safety check for the kids to make sure that they were safe. It was not a check to um, find out about uh, immigration enforcement. It was more a child welfare check. So what happened is they they told Congress a month ago was that when they did these phone calls, out of the several thousand phone calls that they did in a certain time period, there were a little over 1,400 kids with whom they could not reach that one time during that one phone call check-in. So it's not that the kids went missing necessarily. HHS doesn't have that information. They were not able to say the child's gone or the child ended up. All they were saying is that nobody picked up the phone when they did that phone call. So for all we know, these kids could still be in removal proceedings, right? DHS has not said anything about this population. So they could still be in removal proceedings. They could still have applications pending before uh, the government. They could have already been deported. So we don't know. So I think this... um, missing child narrative is a little bit misleading. The truth is all they said was that they did one phone call 30 days after release and that person didn't answer the phone. Um, I will tell you from practicing law for a long time, you know, you might have clients who don't call you back for two weeks and they call you back and you move along like nothing happened um, and you're able to work on their case. So I think that, you know, the, the government saying that did not indicate that there's any worry of these children or that they somehow are hiding or went underground. I think there's been a little bit of a hysteria around this. But I think the good thing is, is that it's really garnered people's attention to understand what the real issue is, which is these separations at the border, how the government is rendering these children unaccompanied and really trying to limit their access to justice and due process. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've heard people speculate as well that part of the reason why the phone calls may not have been answered is because the sponsors for these children, the guardians, uh, may themselves be undocumented and may be wary of engaging with you know, any sort of authority figure who's calling. 
I don't know how accurate that is. I mean, these are sponsors who already voluntarily went to the government to say that they wanted to sponsor a child. They already gave their address, their fingerprints. The government they already allowed the government to do a full criminal background check on them. So it seems unlikely that then all of a sudden, 30 days later, they wouldn't want to have any interaction with the government. I think the real issue is that this is a very transient population. Uh, this population oftentimes um, does not have regular work hours, does not have a fixed place to stay necessarily, and is often of limited resources. And I think that makes it harder to be in communication with them, more so than whether or not they have uh, immigration status in the United States. Well, you referred to earlier how you know the, what's happening at the border currently is going to mean a, an enormous influx of children uh, who are going to need representation, and that's what you do. You know, I just read a statistic that uh, unaccompanied children are five times more likely to gain U.S. protection if they have an attorney representing them in immigration proceedings. So can you talk a little bit about some of the work that KIND does in this regard? Sure. So we provide legal representation to these children at no cost to the child. And so we do it in two ways. We, in our offices around the country, we have attorneys that take the cases themselves, direct representation attorneys. We also have a very large and robust pro bono program. So what that means is we go out to the big law firms and corporations and we recruit attorneys who are willing in their free time to take these cases for free. So we'll screen the the child when they come and they'll come to our office. We'll screen them. We'll determine whether or not we think they have relief, and then we'll place them with one of these free pro bono attorneys. And then we mentor the attorney through the case. Some of these are, you know, general counsels or corporate uh, corporate law attorneys um, and don't necessarily have an expertise in child immigration issues. So we train them and then mentor them through the case um, so that they can provide representation to these kids at no cost. It's been an incredibly... Um, uh, growing quickly growing program and very robust however there's still you know less than 50% of the kids who are represented right now in immigration court and there's an extraordinary need and as i mentioned it's growing exponentially i, I would imagine that contributions to kind would probably be welcomed Absolutely. We, um, you know, funding our legal services team is our, you know, one of our biggest priorities right now. I mean, having a child represented is going to really put them on a path to safety and security um, and path to success for the rest of their life. So I can't overemphasize how important counsel is in order to get that. So these children don't have to live, you know, underground or, or under the radar. When we represent children, we have an overwhelming win rate. So when a child does have an attorney, you know, right now they're winning their cases for humanitarian protection. So they're able to stay here in the United States. So we want to make sure that they get the legal protection that they deserve, you know, that our country has decided that they're, you know, that we want to give to them so that they can become contributing members in our communities. You know, you did touch on this a little bit earlier, but I think it would be a good place to leave it. Um, let's, let's sort of wrap this up in terms of what kind of action people can take. Certainly, we talk about bringing attention to members of Congress. Uh, that is obviously a, a very important thing. Um, but I'm wondering what other sorts of things is kind recommending? that people who are distressed by the situation can be doing in response? Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, I think, you know, speaking up about this absolutely is the most important thing. Um, we've seen, you know, history tells us staying quiet is how... Um, 
you know, really horrible things are going to happen to people. And so we really need to speak out on this. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways of doing that. I think that's making phone calls um, to your members of Congress, you know, writing letters, writing to your newspaper, um, you know, lifting this issue up on social media. I think if you're an attorney, you know, volunteering and taking cases, if you speak Spanish, volunteering as an interpreter, um, KIND has lots of ways for volunteers to get involved. I think financial donations are incredibly important um, and can't be, you know, underestimated for the significance it give to somebody. Um, and, you know, KIND works with a whole host of other organizations. And so, you know, anyone should always feel free to reach out to us and we can direct you, you know, if we don't work in your city and you want to do something else, we work, you know, with a network of organizations that do this work that we can point you in the right direction. Well, we'll definitely make sure to have contact information for KIND uh, on this site. And I also want to provide uh, an FAQ page that you and a colleague put together that can help people understand the situation uh, a little bit more clearly. But Jennifer Podko, I, I want to thank you uh, uh, for joining us today, and especially thank you for the work that you're doing on behalf of immigrant children. Oh, thank you, and thank you so much for raising this issue up. I really appreciate it. And so let's talk briefly about some of the other things that we can do here, both across the country and here locally in Washington. First, we can call both of our senators. And as of this recording on May 31st, neither has made any public statement on the matter. We can also call our member of Congress. And there are a number of pieces of legislation that have already been put forward that we can urge them to support. You will find this information in the FAQ page that I have included from the KIND website. But briefly, they are H.R. 2572, that is the Protect Family Values at the Border Act, H.R. 5950 slash Senate Bill 2937, the Help Separated Children Act, and H.R. 2043, also Senate Bill 2468, Fair Day in Court for Kids Act of 2018. After that, we can call our local branches of ICE. The Tukwila office is at 206-835-0650, and the Tacoma office is 253-779-6000. If you want to bypass the message, press 2 and ask for the Community Relations Office. I've also included a move-on petition for you to sign directed at Department of Homeland Security Director Kirsten Nielsen to end the separation of parents from their children. Finally, if you are looking to take to the streets, as I know a lot of us are right now, there is a nationwide event, the National Day of Action for Children, sponsored by the National Domestic Workers Alliance. That is happening on Friday, June 1st. Now, we are joined right now by one of the people who will be speaking at the event in Seattle that is happening. Uh, Hilda Blanco is here to talk about it. Hilda is an organizer with the We Belong Together campaign. Hilda Blanco, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So first, um, you know, what's happening to children and families at the border is just it's beyond heartbreaking. Um, and I, I know that the We Belong Together campaign is something that has been working in this area for quite some time. So first, just tell us a little bit about the We Belong Together campaign, what it does and what you do with them. So um, with We Belong Together um, campaign is uh, one of the, one of the campaign uh, with the uh, National Domestic Workers Alliance, um, and then we have uh, a lot of people who are leading that com- this campaign, especially for the um, uh, immigration. Uh, it's especially for immigration community who um, who want we want them to be protected in this country, no matter what issue your legal status in this country. So um, this campaign uh, helps us to to raise our voice 
to to um, let the, the society know, the people of, of United States know that no matter what, we are here, and then to make sure that everybody is safe. Specifically, it's aimed at keeping families together, right? It's specifically keeping family together. I think I, um, this uh, uh, a new administration we have right now is treating, you know, uh, our, you know, treating our people, treating us, you know, um, as a criminal, as an animal. Yeah. As, um, and then when I say criminal, animal, include all of us, include our children. And then it's not fair. Um, this enforcement right now um, uh, taking advance to uh, denigrate us uh, um, with the uh, border protection, they say, in, and then um, it's uh, affecting our babies, affecting our parents, affecting uh, their mothers, um, affecting uh, 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 all uh, children who are uh, able to be abused because no one are protecting them. It's it, as I said. It's just it, it's incredibly heartbreaking, and it just it, it shocks the conscience. And I think, uh, well, I, I think that people are going to be happy to hear that there is an event that is happening that the National Domestic Workers Alliance, specifically the Seattle Domestic Workers Alliance, is putting on so that people can actually get out and and express their outrage over what is happening. You're meeting at noon at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I'm wondering specifically, why did you choose to meet at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Seattle as opposed to, say, going down to ICE in Tacoma? Why the U.S. Attorney's Office? First of all, um, we are meeting there uh, because um, it's important to us as a community, as a family, as a parent, uh, uh, for um, to demanding rights for our children. Um, when we say enough to criminalize immigrant community, it's enough to separate family for their parents. We have to make sure that they are he- they are heard us to uh, send uh, our message to to White House and then do do um, action immediately um, because uh, we need um, our children to be with their parents. Our children, they are suffering, right? They are suffering abuse. They are suffering, um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of issues right now. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of family, they can uh, do uh, the, the normal life, you know, because they can bring the children to school uh, because that situation are happening with them. And then one thing is uh, the parents that are facing right now is being scared to be separated with their children. Is mm. the, the kids be separated from their family? It's, it's, it's a lot. So we are here to, to raising our, our voice and stand up to say enough is enough. And then uh, it's starting to criminalize us. It's starting calling us animals because we are not animals. No, uh, certainly not. And uh, the U.S. attorney would be the entity that could, uh, as you say, send a message to the White House. Um, So talk about the agenda for the event. I know that you're going to be speaking. Uh, Are people meeting out in front of the U.S. attorney's office? What what is the agenda? Um, The agenda for for this event, uh, first of all, uh, we will have um, a lot of uh, um, uh, leaders in the community who are, uh, we are going to be together tomorrow, and um, also uh, to make sure that we are uh, calling to action, and then um, uh, to to make sure that um, um, you know the, the community is is um, is with us, uh, to make sure that um, 
we, we are protecting our kids. And then um, for tomorrow, um, uh, it's the the address you are mentioning is uh, we are going to concentrate there. Um, it's uh, because because it's, it's will will be um, um, uh, important uh, um, uh, you know place to be uh, to talk about um, things concerned to us and then uh, make sure that uh, um, those messages. Uh, uh, will be, um, you know, um, sent to, to the, you know, to the new administration and then do something, do action about it. Um, I know that the ACLU's People Power has announced an event at the same time and venue, and I know that you're coordinating with them. You're coordinating with a number of groups for this event. Who are some of the other groups that are involved? Um, other group, um, you know, we are coordinating with the Mom Rising and then, um, uh, other coalition in like uh, uh, Working Washington, uh, Seattle Domestic Workers Alliance, National Domestic Workers Alliance. Um, so we are doing that in coalition to be tomorrow in uh, 700 Stewart Street, Seattle. Yes. As you say, the event is the National Day of Children at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and it is this Friday, June 1st at noon at, as you say, 700 Stewart Street in Seattle. I will have a link to information about the event on the show's website, indivisiblepodcast.org. But Hilda Blanco, thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for creating the space, raising our voice, and then continuing um, um, you know, advocating uh, for our immigrants here in this country, our citizens in this country, but especially our kids, because it's the future of this country. So given the news this week, I'd say that we could use a dose of good news. And as it turns out, there have been a few bright spots over the last few days. So let's start with the top of the list. ABC has canceled the Roseanne reboot hours after Barr put out a horrifically racist tweet. Uh, and, and we can debate about whether or not ABC should have contracted her to begin with, since she is, well, known to be a racist with a Twitter history to prove it. And we can certainly offer some sympathy for the rest of the cast and crew and the others who were just put out of work. But, you know, two things on that. First, as somebody who's worked in entertainment, you recognize that jobs come and go and it sucks, but you move on and that's part of the gig. But in terms of ABC's move to cancel the show, it was proving to be a ratings hit and a cash cow for the network. So I'm sure that decision was not made lightly. I am inclined to give props to ABC for doing the right thing that we had a government, uh, more specifically a Congress, that felt the same way. Speaking of props, uh, in light of Barr blaming her racist tweet on having taken Ambien, I have to give a shout-out to Sanofi. Now, I usually don't have especially kind words for giant pharmaceutical corporations, but I think the makers of Ambien deserve a special shout-out for their response, which I will quote in full. Quote, people of all races, religions, and nationalities work at Sanofi every day to improve the lives of people around the world. While all pharmaceutical treatments have side effects, racism is not a known side effect of any Sanofi medication. 
I think that gets a no snap. Uh, what else? Missouri's Governor Eric Greitens is stepping down. The Republican had been facing allegations that he had made unwanted sexual contact with a female hairdresser and that he improperly used a charity donor list. In his resignation, Greitens said, quote, I am not perfect, but I have not broken any laws, which is a low benchmark, but, uh, you know, I suppose it's 2018. Uh, however, maybe he should have said that he hasn't been convicted of breaking any laws because he has has been charged with two felony counts that he used a veterans charity donor list to raise money for his 2016 campaign. Uh, by the way, Greitens had previously called the allegations against him a, quote, witch hunt, which is a, it's a good reminder that the laws of political gravity still work for everyone else. And finally, here at home in Washington, the Bellevue-based video game company Valve has decided not to release a first-person shooter video game that simulates a school shooting on its online platform, Steam. They have also decided to sever their relationship with the developer of the video game. Again, this is an instance where doing the right thing should have been a no-brainer, which is to say Valve never should have considered having a game like this on its platform, but they pulled it, so... We will let that count as good news. And in fact, we will let all of this count as this week's dose of good news. And that'll do it for this week's show. Uh, for more information about the show, head over to IndivisiblePodcast.org. As always, please keep the emails coming. I really love hearing from you guys. Direct them to IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. My thanks again to my guests, Jennifer Podkel and Hilda Blanco, with special thanks to Alexandra Pender, Rich Smith, and Sydney Chun. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>